Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bundjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm looking at him in his studio. I'm very excited about today's guest. He is one of the founding members and still in the band Noiseworks, who I just absolutely loved when I was younger. He's also the front man in the band My Sex. He has his own musical solo career and he's also a brilliant music producer. I'm talking about the awesome Steve Belby, who is a self-professed musical plate twirler and former trash bag. How are you, Steve? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> great. It's great to have been a trash bag. <laughs> it's great. I but agree. it's even better to be clean and, and well. And to, yeah. to be able to look at those days as another lifetime. 
Absolutely. Yes. It's great. I agree. It's great to have been a trash bag. It's great to also be an ex-trash bag. A hundred percent. Steve, tell us a bit about your history. First, tell us about where you grew up and how you first started to dabble in, I guess, alcohol or how it first all started for you, your big journey that you've been on. Yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, I noticed feeling different really early at school. It seemed like, and I don't mean different as in special, I kind of got on with everybody, but I didn't feel like I ever fit in. And school days for me were kind of like, it was like I was living in a silent film. I was in my head, I could hear my head talking, and it was all just happening around me. I was totally in my own world. I'm not sure what that really means in the whole scheme of things, but I I never felt like I I really fit in, even though it seemed like I did. I remember the first time I'd experienced an out-of-body sort of high was, I I think I would have been around nine at a classic Maltese wedding. I remember running around, being the kind of ringleader, going around to all the tables and getting an empty glass and putting a little bit of wine, whatever unfinished drinks into this this vessel and sculling it. And then I remember remember being on the floor and everybody looking down at me, the attention. I can remember the attention. Once again, I'm not sure what that means in the whole scheme of things, but I guess I felt not important, but I was the focus. That's what kind of left me feeling. Um, Wow, wow. Yeah. Remember, the next time I can actually remember drinking was at a school dance. And I went and bought a bottle of Brandovino, like cheap ass, like crappy wine or whatever it was. And, and I didn't have a sip of it. I, I was showing, I tried pretty much sculled the bottle in a few swigs and I was kind of showing off again. I guess it felt a little bit like the wedding vibe, but pretty soon I was on my back. My parents had to come and pick me up. And I've always used and drunk like that. If I went to my parents' place as I, when I was a bit older and my dad offered me a beer, by this stage I was using heroin, but if they had someone offered me a beer, I wouldn't bother. It's like, why would I have a beer? Why would I want to actually even have a drink? I'm stoned enough, you know. Wow. So it's always been a really full on, like all or nothing type situation. All or nothing. Can I'm I like just that with anything? Wow. Uh-huh. I do the lawn like that. Yeah. If I do the lawn, it's the fucking, it's a serious job. <laughs> I think I can relate to that 100%. Can I just ask you a question where you said you felt like you never fit in? Where do you think that came from? And if this is too personal, that's fine. But no. did you feel like you fit in within your own family system? I mean, you know, I didn't have an abusive upbringing or anything like that. It was very loving, but it wasn't very communicative. It was sort of a lot of, as long as the place looks tidy and you guys are kind of out of the way. I love my parents dearly and I'm really close with them, but we weren't that household where we sort of have open conversations about what's happening. I don't blame any of that. I actually think I was just born with this disease. I I really do. I I looked into all that when I eventually did get clean and I don't know what it is. And and to be honest, I don't really, I don't really care what happened. I just know how to stay clean and I focus on staying clean and doing the things I need to do to do that. A little bit unsure about why I felt like I didn't fit in. It's interesting. It just seems to be a common 
theme that comes up a lot often in this podcast where people feel like that they didn't fit in and when they first drank alcohol, it gave them a sense of belonging or fitting in or gave them confidence. Interesting too how you said it gave you attention and there was that also that theme of when you drank later at that high school event that you sort of got the attention as well. So I wonder if there was that perhaps maybe and, and probably links into that lack of communication perhaps maybe there was that yeah. wanting for that perhaps but it's interesting and like you say it's not about the past per se but it's about staying clean and sober as you are now for some people Danny you would know for some people it is about you know delving into the past and and feeling comfortable with that I'm kind of a lazy recovering addict I do what I need to do to stay clean and yeah I, I've, I must have done enough work because I've been clean now for abstinent for 25 years so I must have done something right. It's worked. I don't know what, what my marks are, but uh, I'm still clean. So. That's awesome. So tell us a bit about that progression. So from that event that happened in high school, how did things start to unfold and evolve for you with the alcohol and then eventually into drugs? Yeah, I guess I was on that road and I, I speak about that road to my kids. I've got 23, 21 and 16-year-olds. At certain times, I've let them into my life, not all the blood and gut stories, but basic uh, brush strokes of, of what happened to me and how I feel incredibly lucky to have survived it. But I remember putting my hand up to being a part of Trying Pot and I remember having my first bong and I was swinging on a cane chair at a friend's place by the pool, very exotic, and um, listening to Hunky Dory, David Bowie. Life on Mars, and I tell you, my world changed. It was quite an experience feeling like that, but also hearing music like that and thinking, wow, this is a whole universe. I was so excited by it. I was thrilled by it. I was elated. I was just sort of like, wow, this is it. Getting stoned and trying to make music like this, or and I was 16, probably 15 maybe 14, I'm bad with timelines, between 14 and 16 somewhere. It was a weekend and I remember wanting to feel like that again and couldn't wait till the next weekend. So it was sort of within midweek I was smoking again and then I found that I was smoking most afternoons after school and incorporating that with drinking at parties like you do when you're a teenager. But I could never get enough. All my other friends would sort of seem to be happy leaving the weekend alone. And it, for me, it wasn't enough. And so I would need to smoke during the week. It sort of didn't get progressively worse. It just started full on. Probably took a, took a couple of weeks to fast track into nearly a daily thing for me. Fuck, oh, wow. Was anyone aware, Steve? Was like your parents aware? I don't think so. I did. I know. I, I discovered a, a neighbour across the road that sold pot, which is amazing luck for a kid that wants to use pot. I think they la it was laced with something. I remember going over having a joint and spinning out on my front lawn. And I'm sure that that my folks probably would have been aware of it. To be honest, I must ask them that because I know when my son smokes. He's 16, and he came in the other day and. He had that sort of that squinty eyes, but really up vibe sort of, hey, guys, how you doing? The acting straight version of himself doing a really terrible job of it. 
I said to him, you're stone, man. He said, no, 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 I'm not. So then I, I thought I'd go and check his third drawer down, you know, in his bedroom. And of course, I found a little rock ash. And, uh, but he's been really great. We've had some really great conversations. I feel very fortunate that my kids have access and I have access to them, whether it's my daughter and at 23 or whatever, but they do talk to me, which is great. great. And I'm not a fool enough to say that don't smoke don't drink i'm just saying hey this is these are the possibilities and this is the road you're on and this is the shit that happens on that road hopefully you can avoid it and hopefully you can decide to sort of jump off it yeah so 16 smoking pretty much every day and drinking a lot then the big hit came i was propelled into another sort of hemisphere of using i was playing in a band called rupert b I got a phone call. I was in the kitchen at home and the phone rang and my mum was on the phone. She said, it's a guy called Kevin Borich on the phone. At that time, like Kevin was really quite huge and um, yeah, wow. just played the, I think it was the showgrounds with Carlos Santana and, you know, he had his wonderful pink suit on, never forget that. And she said, uh, he wants to speak to you. And I'm oh, okay. I'm sitting there and Kevin said, I saw you playing in a band the other week and wondered if you'd like to join the band and come on the road. And I'm, I'm sort of six, I'm 16 and a half. Wow. And I've gone, hey, mum, can I go on the road? And she's gone, what's the road? <laughs> and uh, anyway, so it turns out that I took that opportunity because I was fortunate enough in year 10, my dad was called into the school and I, he was given the, I was given the ultimatum or he was that I either stopped playing music because I was very distracted by it all and um, and I could finish year 10 or that I wasn't welcome back to the school. And I remember sitting in the principal's office with my dad and it seemed like an eternity, but he just sort of sat there thinking. And he said, oh, well, it looks like he's not coming back. And I walked out of school that day with my dad, left my bag in the classroom and, and everything. I just left and started to try to be a musician. And, you know, soon after that, that's when I got the call from Kevin Borich and I found that this is a classic story. It's like I was in a band doing a residency. It was a school, that, a band that I'd started at school. It was in Tweed Heads. And the vibe of me leaving the band wasn't very, very good. So I decided to go and stay at a friend's place who was a sound guy for a blues band called DV8. The short story is I met Kevin back in Sydney at the airport. I'd never been on a plane before going over to New Zealand to play a 10,000-seater with D.D. Smash and Kevin Borich and someone else. I'm so excited. I'm super nervous, but I'm studying this, this material. I'm on the plane heading over to New Zealand with Kevin, and I, I'm curious about a chord change or something, and I've taken off my headphones, and I've given it to Kevin, and I said, what's going on here? Kevin's listening. Who is it? It's sort of my world came crashing down. I'd been learning the set, a live set of a band called DV8's material. I knew it back to front. The tapes got mixed up. <sighs> I'm literally hours away from being on stage with 10,000 people with oh Kevin. My God. And Kevin being the sort of guy he is, it's like, it's cool, man. It's, it's blues, you'll be fine, you know. And it's like, it's not quite that easy. And there's songs and I don't know the song. So instead of landing 
in New Zealand and going to some guitars, we go to a guy called Paul Hewson's house, who is the keyboard player and songwriter from Dragon. So we're sitting in Paul's kitchen and Paul opens his little blue box and out comes out comes the heroin. So they're all having a taste and me being sort of the sort of person I am, I put my hand up, I have a crack. I had my first shots and sick as a fucking dog I was vomiting instantly I find myself like only maybe four or five hours later about to walk on stage feeling so ill not knowing any of the material peddling A's vomiting behind an Ampeg bass stack somehow got through the gig and Kevin gave me a whiskey and said well done (laughs) oh and then hit the road for the next four years. I don't think I actually unpacked my bag. We were just on the road and my heroin habit started then and I, I started using quite frequently. And uh, I think about my son, 16, who's my age now when I, this was my world. And I just think, fuck, I'm really lucky that, that he's doing his thing. He's a fast bowler. He's a cricketer. He has a bit of a party every now and then. But it, So once again, I didn't do anything half measures. I just used did anyone tell you, like, you're a 16-year-old boy and you said, like, sorry, but where's the duty of care to this young man? Did anyone tell you not to do it or was it that they just... No, I mean, I can't remember the actual time, but no, I, I mean, I often wonder about that. However, I don't hold any resentment or a, a grudge. I think if I didn't use that day with Kevin and, and those guys, I would have found it somewhere. Now, I really believe it's not any of that stuff out there. It's a disease in me. I have an inferiority complex. I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And I think the inferior part is the thing that, that I'm scared about. And then what happened is I, I really learned no life skills because from 16 years old, I had everything done for me. My, I was paid. I was My banking was done. I, I lived it at home, but... I seemed to have money and I was living this crazy, crazy life. And then, then I started Noiseworks with the boys and we got a record deal. And I did stop using heroin at that point because it, it became too much. All eyes were on me, something, and people could sussing me out. And it, was, it all started to get very serious, having that kind of level of being in the business. It was very different then. If you got a record deal, it was all very freaking serious now everybody makes records and we all just put them out we're our own labels and it's it's quite normalized but back then it was a big deal to get a deal with sony and have them spend one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a record you know so the pressure was on and um so i stopped using heroin i didn't even realize i was addicted to it i remember the very first live gig we did i thought well okay i'll stop now so i didn't score and i found myself crying, weeping, crouching down in the band room after the show. I didn't know it was happening to me. I was in tears and I ended up in hospital with alcohol poisoning that night because it was, I just had to not have that feeling. Wow, that's the antidote. A guy that I just spoke to on the podcast named Jack Nagel, he was a young basketballer and he got a, a meth addiction and he was only young and travelling to America to play basketball and he didn't realise what was happening to him when he started to cramp up and sweat and feel horrible on the plane. He was detoxing. He didn't even know. He didn't realise what was happening. 
at the time. But it, also he got to America and he couldn't get any alcohol because they were too young. Yeah. He just had to kind of suffer through it. Holy shit. So just going back to that, because I'm always listening out for the little things that I hear, but that kind of inferiority complex, that feeling of inadequacy, when you've gone and joined Noiseworks and obviously that band's blown up and got the record deal, do you still have a sense of inadequacy then, that inferiority complex still hanging around you then? Yeah, I did. And it was even heightened because... I'm a true songwriter. That's what I was born to do. I made a choice really young to not be a virtuous musician. I just wanted to tell stories and write songs. And I did, I've been doing that since I was eight, since I've had my first guitar. And being in a band with such an incredible singer, like there's a whole story around that, but we won't delve into that. But I found myself just having to shut up and be a bass player. And I knew I was better than that. I knew I had more than that, much more to offer, even though my songwriting in the band grew to be quite a a major part of it. But I always felt a little bit like just stay in your corner, man. Mm -hmm. I could see that happening too. And, I mean, it happens in all areas of life when there's someone as well in John Stevens, obviously an incredible singer. Yeah. And it's really hard when we kind of compare ourselves as well and then feel like I can't break out of this box that I'm in. And, yeah, I can imagine that would be super frustrating as well and not quite sure where you fit in the grand scheme of things sometimes because you want something else perhaps. Yeah. Look, Noiseworks, I really appreciate the time I had with Noiseworks and I think I I have this wonderful life I have now because of Noiseworks. I've been able to keep writing and and propelling with creative ideas and I guess it gave me a great platform in the industry I'm still doing what I do and so I have a a lot of gratitude for that but I don't think I actually ever it was ever in my heart of hearts the sort of music I I felt like I could make it was part of it before Noiseworks Justin Stanley and I were a band we were starting a band and we ended up just joining forces we wrote some songs and it just took off but it was always the electric hippies for me it was me and Justin I was a singer we wrote cool songs that we really loved and then it all changed and it took off and we're pretty loyal people so we stayed with it and it was great fun being 21 years old and touring the world and with platinum records there was nothing wrong with that it was it was a lot of fun and I wouldn't take it back but I remember bringing a song in to the band and they loved it because it was always a promise that I could sing a bit, you know. And I remember John going, well, why don't you do a version and then I'll do a version? And it was like, that was like, I might as well have just chopped my head off then because, I mean, John is, to me, the greatest rock singer on the planet. And my version was shit compared to his. So that didn't do my esteem too much good. And still to this day, we might do a show in February and I've got to sing, say, BVs. And John will get one of the other boys to sing it. And I'm going, oh, fuck, so I'm not even actually singing anymore. Yet I feel like I'm, I can sing well enough to move people to tears. But I, in that band, I feel like I can't sing at all. Mm. I'm just hopeless, you wow. know. Yeah. yeah. And to I have that be like... such a big part of your life for so long, but to be sort of under the umbrella of someone else and not being able to have your full expression, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But I drank myself crazy towards the end of Noiseworks. It was the big McDonald's sort of size 
cups, four fingers of vodka or tequila with a little splash of anything else, and I drink drink one of them through the show, and then just continue through the night and smoke and drink from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. Wow. And so do you think that that kind of level of drinking, I mean, what was it doing for you? Was it kind of dulling that sense of dissatisfaction that you had or what was it doing? I think it was numbing the dissatisfaction. That's what it was doing. And then there was a a moment of clarity. I was sharing a room with Justin. We just had a number one album. We're touring fully sold out shows around the country. I was in my hotel room with Justin and we always had a little dictaphone with sort of jamming. This particular night we were on ecstasy. We're jamming away and we stopped for a second and Justin sort of said, I just wish music could be like this all the time. There's a pause and I've got this all recorded. And I said to him, it can be. Let's leave the band, man. And we looked at each other and we went, fuck. And he went, went to our rooms. We woke up, you know, by the time we woke up the next afternoon, we, we got up. Our rooms were at separate ends of the hallways and we walked into the middle of the hallway and, and went, let's leave the band. We were out of it, but we were smart enough to know that we needed to call a lawyer. So we called a friend of ours and um, we just wanted to jump off the ship and we wanted to make a record and make music that we wanted to make. Unfortunately, back then there was this really crazy sort of gang mentality that if you're in Noiseworks, you couldn't look at another band or you were sort of, it was some sort of weird betrayal. In retrospect, if we were sort of more adult about it, we would have gone, hey, look, after this tour, let's just take a break. You guys make your record and we'll meet you back in the studio in a year's time. Could have probably continued on, but we didn't do that. The gang mentality, we had this saying in Noiseworks that if anyone ever left the band, that was it. It was kind of like a don't leave or it's over, pressure's on. Now, lawyers, well, what you've got to do is someone, one of you leave and the other one stick to the plan. And so we tossed a coin and Justin was the one that had to leave. And I was the one that had to say, he's leaving the band, that's it, it's over. We always said that. So anyway, we did break up and that wasn't pleasant. There was a lot of foolish, youthful feelings, not discussed. We forgot about all the love and all the great things that we'd achieved and We were all hurt by each other and it just continued on and I carried that resentment for a bunch of years and it was only till I got into recovery that I actually realised how how lucky I actually was and took stock and forgave myself and forgave others around me and uh, made amends and continued on. Oh, my God, amazing. So, yeah, that's so full on. And so he's left and you've stayed in the band and you've so then the resentment starts. So not only you've got the dissatisfaction that's been brewing for some time, that's happening, which is causing you to drink more and more and more, but then we're starting to put resentments on top of that as well. What do you think that does to a person, like from your own personal experience? Like it's kind of not being authentic, isn't it? It's not sort of voicing and, and living the way you actually want to live. So there's that inauthenticity, I guess, without being rude. Yeah, what do you think that did to you internally? Yeah, it does. I believe spiritually if you're not moving forward, you're going backwards, you're going down, you know, and I think even though for me I wasn't on a spiritual quest at at that time, I think my spirit was dying. It felt like I was 
I was losing sight of myself as a creative person. And I know I'm flesh and blood, but that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to create. Simple. I was given that gift. And I think we're, we're all given gifts and they're all equally as important. But I think to be able to discover that can be really simple. It sounds very exotic to be an artist, but artists aren't special. They're just like anybody else that does their part in the world with pride. And I love going to a restaurant and seeing someone take so much pride in, in serving me dinner. It's like, wow. And I always say to them, you're so good at what you do. You just made my night. We're kind of fortunate as artists because we go to work and people clap. <laughs> How weird is that? You and know. Actually, I always laugh about that. Imagine if we all stood around our plumbers when they did a great job of unblocking your loo and you're like, yes, <clears throat> tell everyone, get an autograph, get a photo together. It's just such a weird thing. But don't you think, Steve, I, I believe we've all got an element of creativity in us, yeah. whether it's art or music or the way you do the dishes. We all have that creative element to us. And I think that drugs and alcohol, you might have an interesting perspective on this, but for me it, it squashes the creativity because it makes life so small. Yeah. And you said earlier that when you started with the pot and the music and you thought that you kind of needed that for creativity, I know Ash thought that initially that he needed alcohol to get him into that creative zone. What do you think about that now? Oh, it's the biggest myth. It's the greatest myth on earth. I can't stop. You know, I'm going to have one regret when I die and it's that I haven't made all the music that's, that's in my heart and in my head and in my creative cosmos I can't stop myself and it's I can turn it on and I can switch it off it's wonderful having this beautiful studio at home um, I can come in for a couple of hours and I can just get so absorbed but if I need to take my boy to cricket I can turn it off I can go to cricket I can talk cricket with him. I can put him to bed I can come back in here switch it on and just go I got so many projects going at once and I can just delve in and out. I'm trying to teach this lesson to them. It's not teach the lesson, but I'm trying to be an example to a, a wonderful creative human being, a friend of mine. I'm his sponsor, a guy called Dylan Frost from Sticky Fingers, the most misunderstood human being on the planet, one of the most creative people I've had the pleasure of working with. I'm producing some of his solo stuff at the moment, and it's incredible and it's monumental how creative this guy is and how talented he is. He's the crispy genius. He's quite something else. And he has an incredible fear of getting clean, no matter how many times he dies. He has fear of not being able to create. And I can't tell him. I can't tell him that because it is pretty weird at first, you know, that first A minor in that first moment looking out into an audience it's terrifying. I've learned to just like, bang. I can open my chest up. I can let everybody come in or I can sing it out at the top of my voice without, there's always fear, but once you start, it's, it's just so powerful. And when mm. it comes from the feeling of survival and victory, you never forget the pain. You can always sing the pain. But when you're singing it from victory, it's just so powerful. And it's mm. just incredible, you know, rather than the other way around. It's really boring and really the same all the time. And it's really weighty and you never 
you never really feel those moments. Yeah, so true. Absolutely. It dulls us down so much that we're not feeling into all of those beautiful nuances of life that it has to offer. Well, you said that Dylan has a fear of being clean. Did you have a fear of cleaning up? Oh, yeah. I didn't even mean to get clean. I just went and did another rehab and detox to get everyone off my back. There was a difference. Something different happened. I don't know what God is. I have no idea. I've thought at times that I had an idea, but I, I think the more I I believe that if I think I know what God is, I'm being a fuckwit. And I got a puny brain, you know. <laughs> it's too big for me to know. So I'm just open. But I call them God moments. I like the term higher power. I remember I was in a band. You know, how cunning the disease is, even in the midst of my addiction i was given another record deal with festival and i thought i'd be the next cool hip new nick cave dude you could get around skulking around the world dabbling and uh enlightening people and it was just such bullshit and i, and I made this record and it didn't end up even getting released and i was in a band with uh it was called universe and i had a, a wonderful bass player called kathy green she was in a band a punk band called x and Kat Sinodal, this incredible rhythm section. It was, a, it was a dirty band. It was junkies and misfits. I remember waking up one day. It was the only place that, that would let me in. It was Kathy Green and this wonderful guy called Greg. He lived in a, a housing apartment in King's Cross and his, his doors were open to creative people that sort of skulked around the cross that needed a cup of coffee. And Kathy Green used to live with him and I used to go there all the time and my parents and family wouldn't let me in anymore and pretty much had the clothes on my back and, and one amp and a acoustic and an electric. And I'd lost everything that I'd built. I had an apartment, I had money and I used that within a few years of leaving Noiseworks and uh, the electric hippies ending. It's hard to sort of try and match this timeline up. So I'm babbling a bit. But anyway, I remember waking up one morning and at Kathy and Greg's house and Kathy saying, let's go and get a coffee. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll meet you there in a bit. I'm just going to have a shower. And she went and I grabbed her bass that she used in the band. I took it to the hock shop. I hocked it. No. I scored my gear, went to meet her for a coffee. I'm saying this with a smile on my face. I don't know why. It's incredibly sad. And I hocked a bass, got my gear, met her for coffee, went in the toilets, had my shot, came back out, sat there with her and my coffee and started to cry. And I bawled and I wept and I cried for hours. I went back to the house and I was sitting there like this in tears. And this man, Greg, who was also a recovering alcoholic, he'd been clean for 20 years, his analogue diary was open and in big black letters, texter, was the word phoenix it was a, a rehab now surely greg didn't know that that was the morning i was going to purge and need to make a call but it, the diary was open i was there there was the phone and i'm sitting here in tears and i could just make this word out through the tears in my eyes and i called the rehab and i booked myself in for two weeks time and now i had to stay clean from between date and two weeks and I went back to my parents because they were happy to have me until I went to rehab but I, I used sleeping pills I smoked pot and I drank every day 
And somehow I got into rehab and I did my urine test the second day. And I was thinking, I'm gone. I'm out of here for some reason. They let me stay. They didn't say anything. My urine would have come up negative. And during that stay, something happened. They took me to meetings and, and I heard terms like egomaniac with inferiority complex. And, and I remember having this counselling session with this beautiful lady and she said to me, you know, I really like you. And she said, but I've seen you so many times. She said, you're going to be one of these people that leaves this place wishing you had done more. And she said, pull your fucking finger out. Right? And that should have shocked me. And I started to then listen a little bit. And I remember hearing things like, I could never work out why brushing my teeth and making my bed was so important and cleaning my cup. But that was the beginning. That's what spirituality is to me. It's being practical. It's taking care. And I started to do that. So to make my bed, I started to clean up after myself. And, and I listened and I left. I remember standing at, at the doorway and this other wonderful counsellor that I connected with. Every time I'd left a rehab, I jumped in the cab and I meant to go home, but I turned left and I went to the cross. And he came out and he said, how are you? And I was probably for the first time I actually said, look, I'm really scared. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Every time I've left a rehab, I've used, he put it really simply, he said, just do out there what you did in here, which was wake up, do a reading, put myself on the right channel, call someone, do a meeting, have a coffee, and my day was nearly done. And I did that for nearly two years. I went to a meeting a day. I found a sponsor. I called him every day. I got a service position. I did that bit right. I did that right. I did point form step work. I worked on the 12 steps. I didn't, I'm not a novelist when it comes to step work. I just I got the little book and I and sat there. I uh, got a service position after uh, on the phone line after six months and I had my time and I'd light a candle, have a cigarette, make a coffee, pick up the phone and I'd do a bit of, if it rang, and I'd do my step work on Tuesday morning. I think I built myself a really solid foundation. I, I made connections with people in fellowship that I still have today. I think that was it. That was That was the trick. I did the 12 step recovery process because I tried everything else I tried for a decade to stop as clever as I think I am I just couldn't work out a way that kept me clean wow gosh wow that what you said to earlier about getting yourself on the right channel in the morning that just something about that just got me right in the in the guts and the heart and also that simplicity of just getting up you make your bed you wash your cup you brush your teeth you do a reading those things of just tending to yourself with care make such a huge difference. And I don't think that matters whether you're a full-blown heroin addict or you're someone that's just trying to quit booze. And it doesn't have to be complicated. That kind of setting up that foundation of just taking care of yourself and the importance of making your bed. I remember Mark Perso, a friend of mine, said to me, you know, making your bed is a spiritual practice. Let that mm -hmm. be the first spiritual practice that you have. 
and I've ever since he said that to me, I make sure I make my bed with real care every day. And and that's part of that kind of that mindfulness practice, isn't it? And yeah, caring for yourself and your environment around you. It's true. It just really works. I think caring for others as well is yeah. really important. Giving you get to keep it by giving it away. I think that's a really important part of it as well. Yeah. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, you get to keep it by giving it away. So, how did you start to work on the sense, those things that were keeping you stuck? Did you start to unpack all that, the dissatisfaction, the inferiority complex, all that? Was that kind of revealed to you within the step work framework? Yeah, yeah it was. I often say I learned how to live through the program of the twelve steps. I learned the meaning of gratitude. I learned the meaning of being humble. The cliches, just do the next right thing. I think of that all the time, all the time. Gratitude for me is the key to happiness. It's where it begins and ends for me. And that's, I often say, and I don't say it as an entertainment trick. I say it because it really means something to me. I mean, before I go and do my work, whether it's in a toilet, whether it's somewhere quiet, I pay gratitude firstly to my recovery and then I go through my children and their their health and my happiness and for the gift that I've been given and to help me to give it for the sake of giving not to be loved. And it's made my music career so powerful. It's made my performance so powerful because I'm actually doing it for the right reasons. And it's just there's something else. When you go on stage to give as opposed to be loved, there's no comparison. It's just another there's another level of what people feel and take home. In all work and everything we do, even my job here that I do, like I said to you at the start, what the intention is for this podcast, if the ego comes into it, I think we're on a slippery slope and it's not serving anyone but ourselves and that goes to Shitsville. The intention is to help and to give. I think it's received in such a beautiful open way and people pick up on that. It's just funny, as soon as I saw your face and I heard you start to talk, and the reason you're doing this podcast, it's so important. It's an amazing service, but you're giving for the sake of giving, you know. It's something you you understand, and I can feel an actual genuine interaction here. You're not trying to make a show. You're trying to do something that's relevant and has purpose. I think it's really fucking super cool. Steve, that's awesome. Thank you. So talk to me because I bang on about fucking gratitude all the time. And I reckon people just go, there she goes again, gratitude. <laughs> Can you explain why for you, why the gratitude? I know you just touched on it, but if just unpack it a bit for people listening. So it really lands as best as you can. Like why is it so important for you and how did it change you, the gratitude? Yeah, I guess it was always about me. I was on a plane with Dylan the other day, heading up to a show, and um, he just had an OD. I was taking him to a show to make sure he got there. And I'm kind of like his uncle, you know. <laughs> he wasn't feeling great. And I, I just said, look, at least we're not Palestinians. True, right. I know you just OD'd, but you didn't just get blown up. It's as simple as that, really. From being 36 years old at my parents' place with my 
one amp, one guitar and acoustic in Hock, having to do a gig that night and having to call a friend up that I knew did well after school, had money. I hadn't spoken to him in like 15 years, calling him up and saying, can I borrow some money? To sitting here, I've got a, a creative space where I only have to think something and I can pick it up off the wall or, or get it and, and make create something with it. It's a long way from there. And so gratitude's, gratitude's pretty easy. And even before that, it's like, you know, getting back to the Dylan thing. Okay, well, we're still alive. Where there's breath, there's hope. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so gratitude. I think once you understand the meaning of it, and that's why I give thanks to the, the program, because it taught me that I heard people talking about it, sharing about it, the simple things, the gratitude of walking along the a beach, beautiful beach, take your pick. We live in Australia, take your, your pick of beautiful places to to be. You know, I just look out into my national park out there. I live in the city, back onto a Gadigal National Park. Yeah, I've got, no, got no reason to moan or groan or whinge or assure we things don't always go your way and you're allowed to have feelings. I reckon sometimes it's just... Just shut the fuck up and get on with it, you know, a little bit. I love that. Just shut the fuck up and get on with it. True, <sighs> because I think uh, I could think about myself before, like when I was still drinking a lot, it was probably all about me, a bit of a Danny Fest and a bit of a spoilt brat syndrome and mm. never having gratitude really. And then to, like it brings me to tears sometimes when I think about just the gratitude practice and, like, there's so much to be grateful for. Like, we're so fortunate. We're so lucky. And we are so fucking bratty. And we don't realise how lucky we've got it. Like, even the other day, part of my gratitude practice, I flew to Melbourne with my daughter to go and see Moulin Rouge. I mean, how fucking lucky is that? But also on the plane, it was really turbulent. And it was like, goo, goo, goo. and then it was like, you're starting to freak out and you're starting to sweat a little bit and trying to be calm. And I remember when the plane got out of that turbulent the kind of part that we we're going through and it was just smooth sailing. I thought this is a lot like life, isn't it too? It's just like we go through these turbulent times and then oh, now we're cruising and it's like, hang on a minute, Danny, just take a moment to have gratitude too that you're now smooth sailing and this plane is in a safe zone, even though it was probably always safe. And I really had gratitude the next day for that. Just I've landed safely as well. So there's so many things that went on for me in that, but yeah, God, things could be so much worse than they yeah. are. It's not to yeah. minimise sometimes what we're going through, but there's always something that we can find. And there usually is always through the turbulence, smooth sailing at the end if we can kind of keep our wits about us and keep calm. There's two things think, I'm saying there. Uh, yeah, no, 100%. It makes so much sense. But I think you need to be clear of heart and mind to actually see it hmm. and feel it because when you're using, you can't see that. You can't yeah. feel grateful. It's really hard. You can kind of go... Oh, I'm lucky the dealer was on time. I didn't have to wait around too long. Mm -hmm. Great day. That was a good day, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, uh, I think you've got to be clean to, to see it. That's what meetings did for me through people sharing. And this is the podcast is just another way of sharing to mm. the numbers and uh, through people sharing, learning, and then you start to witness it and you start to feel it. And then, like anything, being clean is being active in practising it. And 
I'm astounded for you too, to imagine you being in that situation of the drink dirge. Talking to you now, I can't imagine you there. However, I sort of can as well. Mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you feel, and do you regret it? No, the only things I regret is my kids seeing bad behavior. Yeah, I regret I, that. Other than that, no, not really, Steve, because it's got me here to where I am now and and it could have been worse too. So, yeah. No, no, not at all. I feel like life's one big creative sort of canvas that I got to mix the dark colours with, with the light and came up with a pretty decent painting in the end. So mm-hmm. the only thing I would change if I could was the pain for others. Mm. So I was fortunate. You know, my eldest is 24. I got clean before we had her. So I can imagine your regret for that, but I was fortunate to not have that. I've been able to be a clean dad, which has been really great. I'm super grateful for that. Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, what Mm. a gift for everyone. Tell me a little bit. I've got two more questions for you because I know we have to kind of wrap it up. And I so appreciate your time. It's just been such a beautiful conversation and it's really moved me. Like I've been brought like the tears are surfacing a lot in this conversation and I'd love to go even deeper. Tell me a bit about self-forgiveness because... One thing I I find when I talk to people that really struggle, whether it was just a binge drinking episode and they made a dickhead out of themselves or something happened, they did something that they deeply regret and they just can't get past it and they just won't forgive themselves. How did you deal with forgiving yourself? Yeah, you've asked some great questions. This one's a beauty because it's so important, right? Remember I was saying, once again, it was recovery and the the 12-step program that taught me forgiveness i was working on my fourth step this is like doing my phone line job my candle my cigarette my coffee and i'm doing my fourth step and started my fourth step and i called my sponsor and i said i'm about to start my fourth step it's freaking me out i've messed up so much i've hurt so many people and he said um what's the fourth step steve it's making a list of people we've harmed and Uh wow And he said, I want you to start your list this morning and I want you to put yourself at the top of the list of people. Then we'll talk about forgiveness. Okay, so I put myself on the list and then I think that was it for the day and I spoke to him at a later stage and uh, he said, what I want you to do before you start your step work in step four is do that prayer to whatever it is and forgive yourself. And I was able to go through the step work. It was nearly in third person. I was able to remove myself because that person that did all those things was kind of at gunpoint. It's not who I actually am. It's what I'm capable of, but it's not who I am. I'm actually a good dude. Oh, okay. Everyone listening to this, this is so important. It's what I'm capable of, but it's not who I am. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah I'm not a guy. I'm not as, certainly not as great as I thought I was, and I'm not as bad as I thought I was, right? I'm just, just another guy. I'm okay. I've got a decent heart. That made the biggest change. That's why recovery, and I believe it is an inside job. It's not just about not drinking and not using. Because there's so many ways to mess up my day and my life and others. There's so many ways. 
but with those principles on board, it's harder to, to fuck someone over or to mess up the day. Yeah, wow. That's so beautiful. And, yes, I think it's important for that person to see that, yes, that's something I was capable of, but that's not who I am. And it was that thing, like not to blame the alcohol or, or the drugs to get away with it, but to see that I always ask that question, would you have done it if you were sober or if you were in a really great place? And the answer is usually always no. Would you agree? Yeah. 100%. I mean, you look at our jails and we all know those sort of stats of the people that are in jails as a lot of alcohol-related crimes. And it's not the alcohol, it's the disease. It's the it's whatever created those behaviours can be slightly circumstantial, I believe, and add a bit of fear and inferiority to that with a bit of alcohol and a lack of understanding and and lessons, life lessons from your elders, parents, and it's, it can get quite complex, but that's where I don't like to delve into it too much. It's like there is a way out. That's the important thing that, yeah. that when people are listening to this, if they're struggling to believe and to understand that you, Danny and I, and thousands and hundreds of thousands of others have survived this thing. Mm-hmm. And you can't underestimate it because you can go and buy a legally buy alcohol or, or pot or whatever it is if you're in LA or other parts of the world. And it doesn't make the difference. You know, it's inside and that's how we repair. It is an inside job. 100%. Yep, 100%. That's beautiful, Steve. Thank you so much for that. And just lastly, when I interviewed this young fella, Jack Nangle, the other week who had the meth addiction. He was saying in that, that he didn't even realize alcohol was a problem because he was injecting meth. And it was like, alcohol's the least of my worries, but it wasn't, it was actually, he was an alcoholic as well. So for people listening, I know people in my world that are taking drugs and that's more of the focus, as long as I stuff the drugs and I can still go and drink. What do you think about that? It's a crazy misunderstanding that the maths is simple. Alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, it's all the same thing. It's, you're an, if you're an addict, you're an addict. It doesn't matter what it is. I don't distinguish between drugs or alcohol. If I lived on a planet where there were no drugs, I'd be drinking every day. I just, it was, you know, I ended up using heroin because it was my drug of choice. Alcohol is a drug. Let's not be confused about that. It says it in the book, just like that. So, true. Uh, so, Steve, all right, if you could go back and speak to that, oh, God, that little eight-year-old Steve running around at that Maltese wedding, filling up that vessel, what would you say to him? Like, I know that you said you probably wouldn't change and you've got no regrets, but what advice would you give that little boy? What would you say to him if you could hold him in your arms? Don't mix your drinks. <laughs> <laughs> um. I love you. That's all you can say. Yes, that's beautiful. Steve Belby, what an awesome conversation. I wish we had another two hours together. But uh, I hope yeah, maybe- yeah, look, it's so nice to meet you. I love meeting Ash back then and I would say you're his better half. Well done. <laughs> I'll tell him that. <laughs> Thank you. No, look, if I'm ever up in town, we must have a cup of tea.
We must have a cup of tea indeed. This is beautiful. I'd love to get you back on the podcast because I'm sure Anytime. we'll have a, have a... I could talk to you for hours, Danny. Thank beautiful. you. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Appreciate Thanks, it. Steve. And for anyone also, can I just add, I'll put all the links to all your stuff in the show Great. notes. So if anyone wants to check out Steve and where he's touring or playing music or just what he's up to, you can go to links in the show notes to find out more. So Steve Belby, once again, thank you so much for your time today. Good to be alive. It sure is. See you, mate. See you, Dan. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.